present is an arrogant time in which to live. Always has been. Humans of the present look back at their people, land and history and whisper to themselves with glee, we are not them. But we were always them. We are our history. We are the crimes of our ancestors. And we wait, mouths agape, to hear tales of hope, as though good could triumph in such a world. But every century, every desperate land, every present has its own moment of optimism, an instant in which its people are so sure, just like their fathers before them, that something better is possible. They tell themselves that their souls are better now, more compassionate, more powerful. This time it will be different. So even when he was lost, face down in the sludge, still unconscious, the man on the banks of the River Tigris would come to believe it too. Proof that even when a person has no name, no memory, and no idea how he ended up on the shores of Baghdad, hope can prevail. Yes, humans have a long history of mistaking desperation for courage. And when he felt a prod in his back, his body aching, his mind flooded with unanswered questions, none of it took away his unshakable belief that eventually all would be well. Told you he wasn't dead, Mariam, told you, someone shrieked as the man heard small feet thumping into the distance. He sat up, blinking riveter out of his eyes. Wait, he said with a grunt that shocked even himself. The sun disappeared behind two figures standing over him. He rubbed his eyes and squinted up at them. The sky was obscured by two pairs of large beetle eyes, made wider by thick black outlines that shaped them into lemons, and by four braids, half twisted into folds of grey cloth. The smaller girl broke the silence with a squeal that wobbled her oversized cheeks. "'Are you all right?' asked Marion politely. "'I... I thought maybe you needed help. Should I fetch my barber?' "'No, where am I?' he tried to whisper, but it came out as a growl. "'Nahar Street is that way,' she said, pointing. "'Baghdad?' he asked. She nodded, and he thought she spoke again, though he couldn't be sure. He stood up, swaying, his head throbbing. He rubbed at the dirt, dried to his chest, and slapped at his sleeves. For a second, he remembered and he was sure he saw his companion and his horse on the banks across the Tigris. "'Bring my horse around, would you, Karim?' he called across the river. "'And no, we can't take turns riding him. "'I don't care what your story says, "'he'll not end up on the river if I can help it.' The man threw his head back and laughed. "'See how well I know you, Karim?' The girls exchanged a glance. "'Let's go, Selsebil. He's crazy,' said Mariam, walking away. "'Look,' said Selsebil, pulling on her friend's sleeve, "'using the full force of her plump form to drag them both back to the man.' He was standing, still swaying slightly and examining the river. Are you a soldier, Ammu? she asked gently, indicating his belt's insignia. He looked down and his hands darted across his muddied uniform. Then how did you come to be here, in the mud? His breathing quickened and he clasped his hands together to stop them shaking. He turned with a slight wobble and shook his head with a gasp. And then he ran. And that was Ruqayya Izzadeen reading from The Watermelon Boys which is her debut novel that came out last year. And she's joining us today on Bulak podcast, which is we are now on episode 34. We're coming to you, Ursula Lindsay, myself, Marsha Linksqueli, uh, and our guest, Rokea from Rabat. And we're starting out talking about The Watermelon Boys, which was just one of the winners of a Betty Trask Prize in London um, a few days ago. Mm-hmm. And Rukhaya is traveling back again to London uh, next weekend for the Shebek Festival. So um, uh, just to tell us a little bit about, um, about your process in, and how you came to writing this particular book. 
Should I start with like a bit about the book, maybe? Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, so The Watermelon Boys is set uh, about 100 years ago in Baghdad. And it follows Ahmed, who's a father who sees his city becoming less tolerant and so decides to join the British-led so-called Arab revolt against the Ottomans. And we know that the British had promised Arabs independence, which was a promise they didn't plan on keeping. Um, And so discovering that creates a lot of problems for Ahmed and his family. So my process... um, Well, I mean, the inspiration for this book began when... Actually, when my grandfather died in 2013, so I'm Iraqi Welsh, and that was my my father's father, so on the Iraqi side. Um, and he had a really interesting life, and his father had an interesting life. His father actually is the basis for um, the inspiration behind Ahmed, although it's it's a fictional character. Um, but when when my grandfather died, I thought about specifically one story that felt really historically significant and that I hadn't seen documented anywhere. And I felt like this story needed to be told and beginning at that point, which is actually kind of part of the climax of the story of the Watermelon Boys, um, the rest of the fictional story kind of was spread out from there. And you had ancestors fighting on both sides of this conflict. Yeah, my father's grandfather and my mother's grandfather fought on opposite sides of the war. Although my 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 British grandfather, great grandfather, um, didn't fight in Iraq or Mesopotamia. Just mm. sig- like symbolically, they were on opposite sides. So right. It puts me in an okay. interesting position. And 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 so then you started you started from this this mm-hmm. core, and then and then what happened? So I started with two stories from Jiddu, my grandfather. The second uh, is the one that I've already mentioned. And the first is actually the second chapter that would follow on from what I just read. Um, where he's uh, running around Baghdad, unable to remember who he is until he's found by somebody he knows. And that actually happened to my great-grandfather. So I started with these like bookends, and then I filled in everything in between with, with fiction, which I want to be clear about, because my grandfather was called Yusuf, which is the name of Ahmed's son, and my great-grandfather is called Ahmed. So there are like tributes, but not I'm not uh, speaking for them. Um, so... From there, I researched a lot for about a year and plotted using a, like timeline software with multiple timelines, like working concurrently. Um, Can I ask you, mm-hmm. and you, so your research was what kind of sources? I mean, you said there wasn't a lot of, fic- there weren't a lot of um, literary representations of these stories or like... Yeah, like, so... One of the reasons that I felt compelled to write this was because um, reading or trying to find fiction set in that era was incredibly difficult in the English language. So anything that you would find set in Iraq then or even during the British occupation of Iraq um, overwhelmingly erases Arab voices, Arab narratives, and it's written essentially from the perspective of the coloniser. So... For me, one of the the privileges of writing this book was that I was able to redress that balance and try to 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 give an Arab voice to that period of history in in English, and so it's accessible to English 
English language readers and British people and Americans who maybe don't know about this period of history? I, I think actually, and, and it's not just Arab voices, I, I saw around the, uh, the, anniversary, the recent 100-year anniversary that there were a lot of university and upper-level um, high school teachers looking for uh, fictional narratives about World War One mm-hmm. that were not from a European perspective, True. but were but were from any sort of um, other perspective, and that they had a very difficult time finding really? narratives. Yes, can I send them my book? <laughs> I did, I did actually, of course. Oh. <laughs> but is but they're, they're talking about a lack of these narratives mm. in English, in English, right? Yes. Because it's yes. not that you were assuming that that, that those... Bangladeshis haven't written right. Um, there are novels that are in available in in Bangla that yeah of, s- certainly there are these narratives from non anglophone non European mm. perspectives but not available in English yes mm. and that really skews our perception of what actually happened and it's I feel like it's one of the reasons that the British public have no idea that. I would say for the large part, the British public have no idea that Britain occupied Iraq 100 years ago and that we invaded Iraq in the First World War. Like, it's not part of our, our war narrative at all. And it's not taught in schools. Right. And and you, you, in part, wanted to write this book in order to start that conversation. Yeah, definitely. Like, there's a huge amount of colonial nostalgia in the UK and you have films like Victoria and Abdul and... Any, any colonial era fiction, TV or uh, TV film or literature, you'll find that there's this thread of nostalgia and wanting to look kindly upon our ancestors and, and upon the empire when that just erases the crimes of it and, and skews our perception of what, what the consequences of that empire was. And I think you have, I think it's 44% of Brits think that um, Britain, that that the British Empire was a force for good and the countries occupied, which is just astounding to me, to be honest. Right. I don't know if it's astounding to me because you see, you get these results in all sorts of... I'm um, I'm working on a book that has something to do with, like, Italian fascism. Um, and, you know, I'm... so I'm, I'm, And then I'm looking at contemporary Italian politics and, you know, when you... There's these, like, surveys about how, you know, the approval ratings of Mussolini. Mm-hmm. Pretty shocking. Mm-hmm. Like, it's amazing um, when you... these you, you get these opinion surveys that... And, and, and I was thinking about Italy as you were talking because Italy, where I grew up, has kind of very much erased its brief but a very, very bloody colonial history, like, um, which was very linked to fascism. Um, and, and they, it, I don't remember any discussion of it in school. I don't, and, and today, like, when the Italian media covers, like, migrants coming from Libya, mm-hmm. there was, like, no acknowledgement that there was an Italian invasion and, like, that killed hundreds of thousands of people, that displaced people, where they, I mean, that it was like really, really violent. And that history is not, not ancient. It's amazing how quickly, like you say, you, or if anything, in the UK, it seems to be like fashionable these days to try and uh, provocatively, like, um, you know, uh, rehabilitate, not even rehabilitate, like it seems like conservative politicians. Like, they think this is a good gamble with the public to just kind of, you know, be unapologetic about it. 
I mean, they've learned from America, I think. I mean, that's not a defense, <laughs> but it's, I think it's a fact. Like, Boris Johnson, Boris Johnson is being so successful in the UK, having mirrored the success of Donald Trump. I thought Boris Johnson had been like this forever. I mean, he has been. I feel like it's it's gone up a level, though. Uh, well, I'm sure there's a lot of a little, like, one-upmanship among all these mm. um, types at the moment. They, well, they can all seem to get away, you know, and encourage each other. I mean, I think it's the fact that we've seen how successful this kind of narrative can be. And I, I don't think that, you w- that we would have predicted that 10 years ago, that Britain would respond to this kind of inflammatory, racist, provocative language in the way that it has and in the way that we're seeing in the, in the Tory party at the moment. Mm. So who did you imagine as the audience for your book then when you brought it out? And then who has the audience been? I mean, to be honest, when I was writing it, I didn't imagine there would be an audience at all. It was just something that I was working on long term and I wanted to write and I wanted to do justice to. So it was less a, it was less of a case of being mindful of who is going to be reading this, but of who this represents. But I wanted it to appeal to to anyone who is, you know, interested in reading historical fiction. And... I found that there is a very international audience. Um, I mean, I can't really say who who mm. is reading it, um, but based on conversations on Twitter and meeting people, I would say it's it's fairly diverse. Just people who are into reading, because I I do think it like yes, there's there are things I wanted to achieve with this book and narratives I wanted to promote over others, but. It is essentially a story about a family trying to do the right thing in difficult and unusual circumstances. And that's something that people, I hope, can relate to wherever they're from and wherever their background. Yeah, I mean, I think essentially it's a historical fiction Mm. that could... Yes, this is where it's set, but... But so what? Right, yes, exactly. I hope. Right. And so what are you talking about at Shebec this uh, coming weekend? Um, we'll be talking about the role of Arab fiction in the contemporary world. So I think it will mirror a lot of what we've been talking about, about the importance of having Arab voices speaking for their own histories and how that how that relates to the world we live in and the context of today. Mm-hmm. And who are who are the other speakers on the panel? Um, they'll be Rabai al-Matun and... Who's a Palestinian novelist. I'm going to let you do the introductions. Okay. <laughs> uh, a Palestinian novelist who has two works out in English. Um, one, oh, it was called, and I know what it was called in Arabic, but I can't remember. Oh, it was called Fractured Destinies in, in the English translation, which was done, I think, by Paul Starkey. And then also The Lady from Tel Aviv, which was translated by Elliot Kola and the one I mentioned first won the International Prize for Arabic Fiction and The Lady from Tel Aviv was shortlisted for the International Prize for Arabic Fiction. And who like else? an Arab lit Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> I um, and also Anam Kachachi. Yes, who is uh, an Iraqi novelist who uh, was... Uh, who has been shortlisted now three times, I'm fairly certain, for the International Prize for Arabic Fiction. Not that this is sort of the arbiter of um, fiction, but uh, it happens to be so. 
So, and all of you are going to be speaking at this literary festival in mm. London next week. Mm. And hopefully joined by Hamur Ziada if his... Right. I, I don't know yet if he's attending or not. Okay. But his name is... It's okay, because he was supposed to be um, a visiting writer. Uh, and then we got a notification, or rather I saw online that he didn't get a visa mm-hmm. to come to England, and then that visiting ridership was given to someone else. So, so there's a bit of a question mark over whether he's attending or not. Okay, and he's a Sudanese novelist um, uh, who has one novel in English translation, uh, The Longing of the Dervish, uh, but I've forgotten who it was translated by. So see what a good Wikipedia I am. <laughs> oh, come on. I was on. like raising oh, my invisible hat. Mm. Um, so I have one more question, but let's see if this if I can articulate it and if you think I'm still sort of mulling this over. Um, but I guess I'm curious, as an author, it seems like you're being called on and probably going to be called on quite a bit to speak, um, as you say, as someone who is introducing a kind of narrative that has been lacking. Um, I guess I, and maybe there's no like black and white answer to this, but some people I feel like sometimes some authors aren't that happy with being called upon to speak as a certain type of author, like mm-hmm. on the basis, or you know, to just speak as sort of like representative of a particular nationality or experience or gender, mm-hmm. um, uh, and would like to maybe talk more about their craft or universally. But then, of course, people at the same time, I think sometimes are very pleased and very clear that this is one of the reasons that they're writing um, and that, uh, you know, that although that's not like explicit, that's not like explicit in the work because that's usually something that's a sort Mm -hmm. of stratum underneath it, but Mm -hmm. that that is a big part of the work. Um, well, I guess where I was wondering where you sort of fall on that, or I mean, I feel like, um, especially in the context of people of color writing about their cultures for overwhelmingly white people uh, or Western audiences, um, I don't think the default should be to call on these people to explain their cultures or explain, you know, their histories to people when when Wikipedia and Google exist. But for for me personally, this is something that I'm happy to do. It's something that I'm passionate about. I wrote this book because I want to, I want us to be talking more about this period of history in that location. So I'm quite happy to talk about that rather than my craft, which I feel a bit pretentious trying to <laughs> talk about. <laughs> what, so why is that period so important, do you think, to both Britain, Iraq, and the relationship between Britain and Iraq? And, yeah, I was going to say, it seems to me like one of the points you're making is that this is British. It's not like you're explaining a foreign country or culture. To, I mean, a foreign country, but it's a country that's part of British history. This and this is, is also British culture. This clearly. is exactly it. Like, there are British characters in this book. But what we're used to is having, in literature, and even in, like, historical accounts, is having the British soldiers go to Iraq and narrate their experiences there. Whereas I feel like this flips it a bit and you have the the Arab voice leading the discussion and leading the like the character arcs and the narrative um, and it is a commentary on British history this isn't this isn't an exclusively Iraqi book it's a book about British history but told from the perspective of the Arabs and the people who were colonized and affected by British ac- actions 
Yeah, I think you, you find the same thing in post-2003 uh, American sold, mostly soldier-lit, but an occasionally sort of humanitarian aid-lit, journalist-lit, where an American goes to Iraq and uh, writes some kind of fictional narrative about it. Um, in, in most of the cases, the Iraqi is invisibilized in this or is sort of deep background one of the, among the trees mm-hmm. uh, um, and and I, I for the many almost exclusively if you if the New York Times made up a, a list or um, even the New Yorker made up a list of this is Iraqi war lit mm-hmm. um, it was all these novels about American soldiers um, maybe there were some British soldiers. I'm not sure. I think there almost are. Ex- okay, so some American soldiers, some British soldiers, going to Iraq and writing about their experiences, and this was what Iraqi war lit was. And well, how when, damaging is that? That that's our narrative about the Iraq war that it completely when, excludes. When most of the people who feel the consequences of war, of course, are the civilians yeah. living in Iraq. But I think, though, it's a, it's in a way, it's a sort of accurate reflection of the fact that the people who, whether this is written by soldiers or by people, or I mean, reporters you'd think would be able to have a larger horizon, but that, like, the people who, who conducted the war had very little actual, con- like, contact. I mean, you write about what you know. If you literally don't know, if you can't imaginatively access those voices then they're not going to make it into your book right like if but you, certainly if, if you're making a list that's called Iraqi war literature and you need to somehow then foreground I'm only telling this one bit of literature right. there probably is other literature out there sure the New York Times could certainly have written an article in which they like at least I mean there's plenty of things written in Arabic mm-hmm. in Iraq that they could at least have, have mentioned those um, but this is I think the case of most um, whether it's in film or in, or in literature you know whether it's America or other countries like it's if there's if there's one field that is particularly one-sided, it's going to be war literature, right? Like and by it's, right. more than any other, almost. Right, right. Well, it's also my understanding from Elliot uh, Cola is that you know if this is also embedded literature, right? That the Department of Defense really funded uh, people to go to MFA programs and funded, sponsored people to write literature, so they really supported. Uh, yeah. soldiers to write these these books so these this huge rush of narratives also came from having a lot of support to write them and then on the other side of course there's not huge support to translate mm-hmm. narratives from from arabic ab- about for instance what kind of effects the war is having on regular people mm-hmm. i don't think american audience wants to read it to the, like, uh, I, my guess would be the majority. I'm sure there's always going to be some people, but I would say, and certainly if, for pop culture, probably there's like not much. I think it's a hard sell to get people to really engage with what the other side of you know an invasion like that meant. Like, uh, it's it's probably it's uncomfortable. And, right, and we well, don't I'm want sure, to see yes. it. We I'm don't want to sh- think about right. it. Right, I'm sure um, "Orbits of Loneliness" by Dunya Ghali, if it were translated, would never be as popular as "American Sniper" mm-hmm. by whatever that guy's name was. Um, right, 
the but Heart on the Locker. Other, I think right. of films. I never read any of these books. But I on the other hand, you know, if we're talking about the New Yorker and the New York Times. I mean, yeah, okay. So I, most of these books, I only read the description. I don't really know what he wrote about in the American Sniper, but I don't want to know. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to read it mm. really. Um, but you know, the New Yorker. The readers of the New Yorker should should engage with those novels. Well, but the readers of the New, Yorker, the New Yorker does have good sometimes coverage of Iraq, like right. Like, I'm, I'm talking about the book. I mean, in 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 the book's coverage, in the sort of this is what Iraqi yeah. war literature is. In these cases, it only lists American soldier lit. Sure, I just don't know what else there is out there in English that you could actually say. Here's a counter narrative. Here's something you it's should read thin. about it's the war. Thin. Right. It's. I mean, there's Frankenstein in Baghdad. Uh, you know, which there's is like the, it's right, like yeah. the book. That, right. There's uh, Sinan's books, um, which I'm looking forward to the new one. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think there are other ways to promote. Like a counter narrative without it having to be about the Iraq War, they could still do a list about <coughs> Iraqi books. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I mean, if if they're yeah. if they're lacking content in that specific area, then there are ways to at least try to counter that. Yeah, I, there's probably just not a huge editorial emphasis in the first place on mm. e- or even you know thinking that it's necessary to do that. I mean. Oh, so this kind of we're already sort of sagged into the other thing that we wanted to talk about, which was the your the blog that you've started publishing pretty recently. Yeah, in mid Ramadan, however long ago that was, because Ramadan skews your timeline. <laughs> I launched a blog called Muslim Impossible, which reviews stereotypical Orientalist and exotified depictions of Arabs and Muslims in TV, film, and literature. And it was something that had been brewing for a very long time, both in my research for The Watermelon Boys and just in my general, you know, entertaining myself with films and books. Uh, Coming across everything from microaggressions to throwaway comments to, like, fully-fledged antagonist Muslim or Arab characters who who fulfill this stereotype and who and whose characterization has really damaging effects and and sometimes you know it's something that's less obvious like Aladdin where you think well this is just you know like good fun but actually there are there are problematic undercurrents and and misrepresentations that affect how we view Muslim/Arabs um, so Aladdin, I remember seeing the... Well, I, the problem is I don't remember it now because it came out when I was like in high school, mm. the cartoon. I remember it being a big deal and seeing it. And now they've come out with the live-action mm-hmm. movie. So um, just to take it as an example, like since I'm sure it's going to be a big deal, I, what what do you think is like the m- sort of problematic thing? I, I can't mean, remember people saying that. I just can't remember it anymore. I mean, first of all, it homogenizes like the the whatever her specific role is, but there's a diversity inclusion officer at the production, the film production company, and she admitted that they have homogenized Arab, Indian, and even China uh, Chinese cultures to create this city of non-existent city of Agrabah, which really is just a way, I think, to to justify the lack of clear and accurate details about Arab, Arab, this Arab culture that they've sort of vaguely tried to represent. 
But the thing I really noticed about Aladdin in the context of other Disney films, because this is the justification, right, for it's a Disney film. None of these cities really exist. None of these princesses really existed. So this is how people try to justify the the vagueness of Agrabah and Aladdin and the cultures that are homogenized within it, which is that Disney is supposed to be magical and and this escapism and mystical. But when you look at the other Disney princess films, the magical elements are, you know, a, a princess with magical powers or with magical hair, whereas I think in Aladdin the magical element comes from this exotified Arab culture. And that, for me, is is the most problematic element, that you can't... They had Arab advisors for this film who were supposed to sort of um, tone down some of the more crude, barbaric elements of the original um, cartoon. But I just don't think it's possible to create an Aladdin void of this exoticism because that is inherently what, what the Disney element of, of Aladdin is. But but do you think the original story in A Thousand and One Night, like that story can't be told? It's inherently... Well, it, so Aladdin's not from The Thousand and One Nights. The, uh, but it was added into right, it, wasn't right. it? No, but, yeah, and the, the original purpose was, I think, Antoine Golan was looking for an exotic tale to... Uh, I mean, I'm not saying that there's necessarily anything uh, that one one is not allowed to ever do anything exotic but but that that's sort of its essential nature I think that that's what Antoine Galan was looking for and Hannah Dieb uh, apparently recited him this something about this tale and then he with Hannah Dieb's uh, tale wrote it down into whatever form it became but so this is the tale that perhaps they, the, they're saying that it would the he was actually authored by this um helper, informant, okay, gatherer so of really information, because right. they, they can't source it, right? Aladdin well, they, in particular is sort of an unsourceable story, right? So it well, may have had elements of... It's Okay, so Hanat Dieb is this Syrian traveler who comes to Paris, apparently at this time when um, Antoine Goland is like overwhelmed by the popularity of the Thousand and One Nights, and everybody's like, we need more nights, we need more nights. Now, of course... There exist lots of similar manuscripts in this tradition in uh, places everywhere. There's the 101 Nights, there's um, Tales in the Marvelous and Strange. There's probably many more we don't even know about stacked in libraries everywhere. But, you know, he's sitting in Paris and he just wants to have more nights. And then this guy, Hanat Dieb, comes from Syria and he, we don't really know what happens, but Hanat Dieb writes about talking to Antoine Galland and Antoine Galland's... Um, excuse me for my massacred French pronunciation, is also writes this down in his uh, diary, that this mm-hmm. guy came and told me this story. We don't really know how much of it came from Hanet Dieb, how much of it... Golan himself Golan might have made him. a lot of it up. But I love that about the, th- the whole sort of backstory of The Thousand One Nights. I love how they're unsourceable and how so many people made stuff and added stories and how it's just kind of... The story of the stories themselves, I really like. I like how it kind of just lives on and travels and, you know, takes all these shapes. Well, I'm particularly excited because Elias Mohanna and some other guy are translating Hanat Dieb's memoirs of uh, his trip, including his trip to France. And this is what I'm really excited about to learn about this guy who... 
It's like a it's de- real, literary it's, detective mm-hmm, story. Yeah, Maybe you'll get to the bottom of it. Well, no, I don't think... I mean, it's available already in French translation and in the Arabic, so many people have already uh, read it. Um, but I'm just excited to read his his memoir of of his view, because I think this is... To me, this is another thing like what you're talking about. We, we, we have read so many stories of Europeans traveling to Iraq or, or um, Egypt or Morocco, uh, Morocco um, in, in you know, these historical narratives, whereas we don't get as many of the narratives of like an Ahmed Ferris Shadyak traveling to England and France and what were his funny mm. views of those crazy natives because they were because uh, you know they were definitely also crazy there's lots of things to make fun about cambridge in um the middle of the 19th century or hannah dieb traveling to to france and what does he make of these these people um so i think that that is to me a really interesting to see how he viewed mm. this time and place i don't i don't know if it's like I'm interested in it as a corrective or just because it's like a fresh... I love fresh ways of seeing things, you know. It's always exciting. And it's a, it's a definitely a way I have not seen France at that time before through the eyes of this Syrian traveler. Mm. So I'm no, keen. it's going to be interesting. Um, I'm still thinking of... I'm still thinking of Disney's Aladdin. I think that's the, the key thing with it is that it's an American production that's telling this story that maybe maybe told in Arabic it would be fine but when you when you're producing something for Disney nobody wants to hear about a normal arab beggar in a city like they they need that magical they need that mystical they need that maybe your hand's going to get cut off if you steal some bread because that's what makes it interesting and othered and mm. um and actually another point about Aladdin is that all of the characters that we are supposed to root for like Aladdin and the genie and Jasmine have American accents and this was a criticism of the original Aladdin cartoon whereas the king's vicious guards who want to chop off Jasmine's hand and um, all of the general public have non-American accents so you have this automatic affinity Hmm. for the American characters when what like why can't why can't we have an Arab accent? Why can't we have Jasmine called Yasmin in it? Like why do we have to Americanize or anglicize these Arab characters in order for us to root for them? Mm. So we still have hand chopping in the new one. I mean, it's it's not as explicit as the original, but he does grab her hand and he does like make a motion to cut it off. Well, see, one of the things I wanted out of Muslim Impossible, uh, which Rukhaya already knows that this is what what my dream for the for for what I want out of the site is there's this amazing website called uh, American Indians in Children's Literature um, co-run by Debbie Reese Dr. Debbie Reese and, and Jean Mendoza uh, and I, I found it to be this amazing resource of critiques of it's this is specifically children's literature from picture books through YA of, of portrayals of different American Indian characters and, of course, also the absence of American Indian characters occasionally in children's literature and just wonderful, sharp critiques that, you know, I can... Somebody's... I see on Facebook, somebody says, oh, can you recommend a a Thanksgiving book for my 
niece. And then I, you know, somebody says, oh, I, I there's this one. I just, you know, found it on the internet. And then I go to, I always go to her website like, oh, no, no this book you definitely do not want. Mm. Um, you know, I think that there's, to me, there's so much horrible, problematic depictions. Like uh, a researcher was telling me that he went through a bunch of picture books and the de- and ranked the um, the modes of transportation in picture books that had Arab characters in them, and the number of camels was like it was like you know <laughs> this bar graph was like <laughs> almost all people right. in Arab countries take camels to get everywhere. Nobody goes like on a bicycle or a car, and that goes so, back. Sorry, and that goes back to the mysticism of it. We need that othered mystical exotic Arabs in order for us to be interested in them. Like, if we just put cars down, it would... The, the storybook wouldn't be as interesting. We'd be like, why read a book? We can just read a book about America, an American if, if, they don't, if they don't get to school by a camel. Right, right. but oh. if, you were, if you did count your way through France, you know, you, you could have one, one Eiffel Tower, two, I don't know what. But, you know, you don't have to... You can do something interesting about a different place that doesn't have to be, um, you know sand dunes it's something i think there's a line there's a line between (laughs) no because there's a line especially when you're talking about sort of like the beginning there's this line between like an element of the appeal of faraway places right in literature or in real life is sometimes a sort of like kind of romanticized kind of it's so different it's so especially like um you know before you've been there when you're kind of imagining far off places like Mm. there's a little bit of that but then of course you know the stories that are like really informed will have like details that are sort of part of the lived experience there and that aren't always the same like repetitive cliches but this conversation is making me think about this and I don't know but for example what do you think of so for example Milo my son reads Tintin books Tintin mm. books are like problematic i mean yes. there are these beautiful like the way they're drawn they're very extremely accurate like uh, drawings of all these exotic places around the world right so it's like the himalayas it's machu picchu it's mm-hmm. japan everywhere he loved and he really like did all this research and copied from photos and so there's all these beautiful drawings the stories are always like adventure and action and he's brave and you know he goes to these places the way that i've tried to like mitigate the depictions that I don't like of foreign people is that we talk about how... So that, like, he's, like, exposed to what I consider to be a problematic, I guess, you know, um, depiction of of foreign people and of the relation... Because Tintin is always coming in and, like, you know, helping, and he's always, like, more competent than everybody mm. else, and he's just, like you know, little uber white man, like, Kinda. solving everything. Um, and also, like, a lot of the time, the local characters speak in, like, broken French. With it. So, but the way that I've done it is, like, not to, because he loves them. He, like, stumbled across them. Like, mm. you know, there are books that his Sonder had as a kid. And then he, and so rather than say, you can't read these because there's stuff in them that I disagree with, the way I've addressed it, and I'm not sure it's the right way, has been to sort of, like, make sure to talk about, like, well, you know, actually, I don't like the way that 
they show this happening here or I don't think it's right or it's like well back then people kind of you know thought this and kind of talk about it a little bit like he's aware of enough historical context to like why white people were in foreign countries at a certain time in history that we can sort of start to contextualize it but not every Tintin book comes with its own Ursula Lindsay. No, to... of course. Of yeah, course. no, I, 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 I don't know. I would but say, I know, uh, but they're I would out say that there. This like... is, right, this is probably inevitable. So my kids came home with this actually not at all exciting and no reason to keep it, except that they did enjoy the Magic Treehouse series. And the Magic Treehouse series also travels to different exotic locations, and there's all kinds of. Uh, problematic racist things in it so yeah so I so you know will find myself like suddenly stopping as I read and having to digress but I think it's, it's not a bad very... thing to learn the to read at, with that level of second degree where you say like I'm we're reading this story but there's this thing in the story that you know you don't have to take as just the way the world is like, right. people will tell you stories all the time, and you can a little bit decide. Right. Although uh, I still feel like there are some depictions. Like, I wish I didn't have chilled monkey brains in my head. I, mm-hmm. I, I don't need to have ever watched Indiana, Indiana Jones. Jones. No, I don't. Yeah, but it gets you, because when you watch it as a kid, I mean, and two, like, I also didn't like that. But, like, I kind of feel like I... The rest of the movie, I thought, was pretty amazing. That one's kind of gross. That's the one where they, like, pull out hearts. There's, like, a lot of... Mm -hmm. But, okay, the first one. There's one that I love about, like... Going to steal other people's stuff right. and stick it in your <laughs> museums. And what? That's the ethical yeah, that's this. the. Uh, well, I mean, when you, when it's between you doing it or the Nazis, they kind of <laughs> they kind of give him an easy. He looks like a hero because it's either Indiana Jones steals the antiquities or the Nazis use them to like win the war. You know, you're scraping so, the barrel. <laughs> oh yeah, so, yeah, that's why they stole antiquities. Oh, right, right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, I saw on the blog what she wrote about the movie that I had not seen that movie um, with Nicole Kidman. Queen of the Desert. It looks terrible. It was, like, legitimately awful in every way. Like, it was a terrible film, and it had a star-studded cast. I don't know how it was it's so bad. It's made by, like, a kind of good director, isn't Werner it? Werner Herzog. I don't I, know or he's it. famous. I mean, it was just awful. She couldn't... The thing is, Nicole Kidman is... Quite a good actress. But not <laughs> but she in this couldn't, movie. I mean, it's not so much that her acting was bad. It was that they got the Persian, the finger-red Farsi with, in the wrong direction. And um, she couldn't learn her Arabic lines. So there's a scene, if you watch it closely, where she is just gesturing to this local. And she turns and she brings him something and she nods and she hands it to him. And then there's Arabic dubbed, like a few, few <laughs> phrases of Arabic dubbed over. <laughs> Um, and like I tried to count how many words of Arabic she could say in succession and it's just like shukran and maybe maximum four words that's weird I feel like I've seen her in a film where she speaks and you know she memorized some Russian phrases I'm sure I mean there is something that happens the like the um, the cliche distortion field for this particular part of the world in like American cinema is like it seems to be acutely strong Mm. like there's a really have you did you see the documentary Real Bad Arabs? Yeah, Jack Shaheen, right? Yeah, I remember seeing that a long time ago and it being very um, eye opening. I mean, what's what? You know, I feel like 
when I started when I looked at your blog, which is excellent. I but I was also like, I kind of thought I felt like we litigated all this like. When I was mm. when I moved to the art world in two thousand three, I remember having all these conversations with fellow journalists and with other people my age in our early twenties who were getting interested in for some reason or another in that part of the world or were from that part of the world, um, about like the, the the really messed up depiction, um, you know, this is around the Iraq War and all the stereotypes in like American media and American pop culture. And, and being so, in, you know, indignant about it and people like writing about it and people analyzing it and people taking it apart in academia, in journalism, in everything. And in a way, I feel like I kind of personally moved on. Like, I don't read bad stuff anymore. I don't watch bad mm. movies. Like, and the people I read about who are, are pretty good, like mm. whether it's scholars or, or reporters. Um, and it was just like, oh, not only is this still going on. I mean, I think really objectively it's gotten worse. Well, I think all the same reasons for these, you know, for these things still exist. You know, if you want to talk about, like, structural racism, all the same reasons why we needed it, why it, you know, still exists. So taking it apart, I mean, I don't know what do you do to change the situation. I really haven't the slightest idea, honestly, but. I think it's good to have on the record just how, like, Shitty, sure. some of these things are in detail yes, yes, in yes. detail like because exactly what they've gotten that wrong that definitely matters i mean this is why i started it because I, you want to go you want to be able to point to something when people tell you no there's nothing wrong with this film you want to be able to like catalog exactly what it is that they've they've done wrong and what they've got what they've portrayed inaccurately so i mean it was really the absence of something already existing that made me want to start it but yeah for like history and chronicling what what we've done wrong going forward in film and tv and literature like and to hold people accountable to to like let them know that okay it's a small blog that you've never heard of but you we are holding you accountable to it. it's not just being ignored and swept under the carpet mm-hmm. and and i do think that your method is important too i do think it's important to sort of like even though i imagine sometimes it's not fun to engage with this content but like if because if you because because to just say like oh this is orientalist for mm-hmm. example like it's it's if you're going to do a critique critique it actually you have to do it where like you engage with the content and you say why and how something Mm, and mm. and then it's there like the argument is is clearly laid out and it can't be um dismissed as easily either although people try already been around for one (laughs) month i'm sure i'm sure especially like people do not like to be told that the pop culture that they consume and enjoy um, is, you know, in some way, like, malicious. Yeah. Like, they really... The, right. <laughs> you, the the Zank books, um, even though the guy pulled... So this was oh, yeah. a, a novel that came out recently from Zank books that was, <laughs> I mean, some crazy level of atrocious and also so poorly written. Uh, I, I really... It, it was... It's blurbed and enjoyed by Stephen King, which I think it's his major its major selling point um, and portrays Arabs in this absolutely insane way and immediately people sort of you know took it apart half of it was available for free so fortunately by and large people didn't have to purchase the book in, in order to uh, to discuss how terrible it was but but I think the editor of Zank Books who wrote 
the um, discussion of why they took it down, mm-hmm. it didn't seem he's. I think he still sort of was like, I liked it. It was supposed to be funny and satire. Oh, yeah. Didn't he say it's like it's your fault for reading it in a racist way because it's, yes. it's all satirical, right? Exactly. <laughs> your eyes Why are so you, racist. <laughs> Why did you take it seriously? He just meant these Arabs were, you know, were stupid in a funny way. What's wrong with you? Um, I do think that one of the things with these, with the, sometimes these reactions, is the effect it can have maybe on an editor or a producer or somebody to to think about these things more. Although, like you say, with Aladdin, I'm sure they hired, they probably they thought about like we need to cover all our bases this mm-hmm. way, and it sounds like the result still wasn't really much of an improvement. Like mm-hmm. with all the sort of desire to, like, exactly not have any kind of backlash and sort of manage to thread it. You know, a lot of people go into this protective stance of, well, fine, I'm never going to be able to get it right, then I'm just going to say whatever the hell I want. But I, I do think a lot of people do read a critique and learn from it. I think when it comes to literature and, it, and the books I'm reviewing for Muslim Impossible, I, what really astounds me is how these books can go through the whole publishing process where they take out typos, they fact check, but they still have these really inaccurate depictions of Arabs, made-up names, made-up places, inaccurate culture or, or traditions. And like, I don't think that this type of inaccuracy would be accepted by publishing houses in any other area. Like, you wouldn't have a made-up Welsh culture in a book about Wales you would have someone check that and fix it and say this isn't up to standard, but that standard isn't maintained when it comes to Arab cultures. So that's something I'd like I'd like to hold publishing houses accountable for. Because, mm. yeah, it's about holding writers accountable for their words, but also the systems that promote these voices and these narratives need to pull their weight as well. Oh, yeah, half the time that I'm, like, really r- really upset over something that's published, I'm, like, more upset at the... At the editor than I am at the writer. Because the writers just trying to make a living. Maybe they're young and they're stupid, or like right. you know or they, they, are they just want a paycheck. Wildly racist, or maybe they're a hack. But you chose to publish. Yeah, them. exactly. That is yeah. that is really where the where the the problem lies. Yeah, yeah I, I, honestly, I um, the, the guy whose name I'm forgetting, whose whose book was pulled by Zank, uh, I don't actually. Are I we gonna want to read his book. Are we going to put it in the show notes, or are we going to are we going to leave consign him to oblivion <laughs> and purposely not put him in the show notes? And we can put him in the show notes um, because I do think that the book is actually comically awful. Um, if if we want to read it as satire, um, but uh, but it's the editor who chose to publish it, who chose to see somehow. I don't. Uh, I don't quite understand what he's saying about um, the way in which he means me to read it. Mm. Well, listen, um, shall we talk about one other piece of writing that is, I think, also connected to what we've been talking about because it's very much the account of a white man in Morocco in the late 1930s and it's also a text that I've actually ever since it's been shared with me I like come back and read multiple times um and still don't know fully how I feel about it Mm. so this is um 
George Orwell's essay Marrakesh, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, yeah, which I just kind of wanted to talk about with you guys since I since I have you both <laughs> today. Um, uh, because it's it's something it's actually something that a Moroccan friend shared with me a couple of years ago, and that I thought about using in my journalism classes when I was teaching journalism, and and but hesitated and didn't do because I wasn't quite sure how to I think frame it and how to talk about it and how to unpack it with like very young journalism students. Uh, so I, I don't think know in what part you... because because his. Actually, stylistically, I think it reads in a very compelling way. I mean, he, he is, after all, George Orwell. Mm, right. And um, I, I, at no point did I want to stop reading it. I, I, felt, I felt his sense of humor. I felt his, you know, his sharpness of wit. Um, and so I, I think it does get inside your, your consciousness in the way that well-written prose does. I also think it makes you uncomfortable, like, and purposely so. So, right. like, it's this very, it's basically this very unrelenting depiction of, like, extreme poverty, among other things, of sort of, of hunger, of death, of again and again seems of seemingly, I would say, quote-unquote, backwardness, right? Mm-hmm. He does which, use the word primitive, yeah. Right, which he then which he then sort of takes you almost to what, the edge of what seems like, oh, my God, what is he saying about these people? And he talks about the Jewish, Jew, Moroccan Jews. Um, he talks about um, the, uh, you know, various populations in Marrakesh. And then at the last moment, there's this kind of mo- unexpected movement of sympathy where where it seems like, oh, the emotion behind this is that he's indignant over the way these people are made to live rather than he's just saying... He's saying... He's I thought saying, it was more self-criticism than sympathy. I mean, he does... He does he's critiquing the invisibleness of uh, Moroccans and then also African soldiers who are uh, African-French soldiers, but also invisibilizing at the same time um weirdly suggesting that there's some sort of something innate i think like uh well if if there was a white farmer hoeing in a field you'd see him because you know white skin is lighter right so he has this passage that says basically he says he says literally brown people are invisible that's kind of the kernel of the like to the white eye i think is is he saying to me to you guys who are reading me to us Brown people are invisible. He says, like, we would notice a white farmer, like, in the fields, but there's an invisibility to brownness. I think this is the core of the essay, but there's two ways of reading that. Like, either he's saying brownness is invisible, or he's saying, we are blind. I am blind. There's something that I'm missing, and you're missing, and we all miss, and we don't see this thing that's there. Uh, That, that's, I think... Right. From the preceding passage where he, you know, he describes brown people, he says brown skin and it's invisible and it melts into the earth and they're primitive and they're, um, he uses very dehumanizing language to then turn around at the end or not even in my opinion, not really turn around, but at the end to frame himself as the objective voice. I found that really probably the most problematic part of all because... 
he is partaking in the erasure of these people and then critiquing it. But I, I don't I don't think he's as objective as he tries to make out. And that for me is just as problematic as the actual erasure. Yeah, I mean, he does spend the whole thing making people sort of seem like a gigantic mass. Here's this, nobody says anything particular except the one guy speaks in French and asks for a piece of bread. But we, we see all these people and they have no particularity uh, mm. to them. And then at the, But then at the end he turns it and he says, uh, here, we're, we're basically, I feel like he's saying we're letting these brown people who are oppressing and being terrible to hold guns when are when are they going to turn them on us exactly so i think i feel like his big worry is telling people watch out you're going to oh, get oh i didn't shot. read it that way at all i think he's saying they would be right to turn their guns on us it's completely understandable and one day they will that for me was the final scene like like there it's only a this veneer of our authority and their deference which one day they will definitely puncture but I don't understand where you get the understandability from because he spends the whole essay comparing Arabs to flies and insects and animals and dehumanizing dirt, the dirt. dirt, primitive. But so I guess I read the entire thing as he is saying it's a critique of seeing people this way. Like he's saying we see them as animals, we see them as dirt, and and that's on us. We're wrong. Like, we should, you know, this is our blindness. Like, we right, shouldn't okay. see people this way. When he says people with brown skins are next door to invisible, I don't, I think he's being sarcastic. I don't think he's being earnest. I right. think he's saying, Maybe, like... but he never, never... He's saying, look at us. We care more about animals than we care about these people. Yes, we don't yes. see them. Like, right. I don't think that's meant to be first degree. No, I, I'm sure, I'm sure... Be- not because of the text itself, but because of who George Orwell is, mm-hmm. that you're right. But I feel like there's no, no, there's no other frame. He doesn't show us that these people have real lives. And so I think the effect of the text is to simply create a dirty, invisible mass, except for the one white guy's farmer whose skin is shining in the, in the sun. I mean, that's... And oh. just in terms of writing, he jumps to so many conclusions. He sees, like, you know... A, um, bumpy ground and he imagines he's walking over uh, graves he he attributes motive to people that he hasn't spoken to and none of these none of these motives are actually positive so he's jumping to conclusions without actually speaking to any of these people and I just don't see how your average British person in that time would read that and not just nod their head in agreement at face value I mean, maybe it's something like, you know, reading Jonathan Swift and the majority of the readers get to the end. They're like, let's eat babies. I mean, I guess for me, when he, the line where he says what's strange about these people is their invisibility. Like, I just I feel like that's obviously right. saying they're not invisible. These people like what's strange about it is that you think they're invisible. And I mean, I think he does. I mean, it seems to me like what you guys are saying is he has his cake and eats it too. Like he 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 partakes he, in that dehumanization, right? Which I I personally I don't think I hundred percent agree with, but I, I I can see that I can see that maybe the I mean it makes sense to me that that that, that and I think a lot of people do experience the text that way, mm. and I think he does not 
he did not he does not connect with the Moroccans in the text like he is unable to have any he has like a sort of generalized sympathy I feel like for their plight for their poverty for the misery that he finds to be unjust I think but he doesn't he isn't able to have like any sort of equal to equal human interaction with any of the people right the he other thing is met right. Moroccans so that he right. could the other thing is is I feel like if he were somewhere else George Orwell would be wondering why why is this poverty what is the social structure where is the system coming from who mm. is creating this system of poverty and here it seems like this sort of um, eternal primitive poverty rather than a specific you don't uh, think it's criti- critical of colonialism? I mean, I Morocco do think was it's critical of colonialism in that, of course, we have the French soldiers, but he's it's 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 as if only the this mass of poor Moroccans exist. I mean, you're I feel like you're doing a lot of work for the text, mm-hmm. and it's it's possible that he wanted you to do all this work for the text. But it's the way I read it from the beginning, though. Um, like I I did. And I partly, I'm sure it is very much influenced by, I mean, I, you know, I've read, you know, a lot of books by Orwell. Like, I have a very clear sense of who he was, yes. his biography, and then, like, I think Down and Out in London and Paris and How Much to Catalonia, and some of his books are just, like, amazing. So I did come in with a very clear sense of what his politics would be, and so, you know, maybe that oriented... The text. That's not to say that because he, generally speaking, had like I think pretty awesome politics, that he couldn't have been racist or or or, or sort of bigoted in some way. That like even some of the you know, you know, people with very good politics can still have like shortcomings, and that that one of the so so the one of the things that I'm not comfortable with is the very ending, and it's because when he talks about. The black soldiers, which I'm even uncomfortable actually using the word mm-hmm. Negro, which he uses in the story, which at the time he wrote it was not, it wasn't an offensive word. That's right. just that back then it wasn't. But now I find it, um, but he, because he, he does seem to be unable, like he's sympathizing with them, but as you say, as a mass, as a group of people who are being taken advantage of and being used and are one day, I think, going to rise up but he's sort of the way he talks about them he does use he talks about them a a flock of cattle right right um i think he does he's unable to like individualize them and and that's the part of the i I mean i think that maybe that happens more than once in the essay to me that was like the the one where i really couldn't i couldn't read it any other way you mean um, it was the shy, wide-eyed Negro look, yes. which actually is a look of profound respect. It's a yes, yeah. yeah. There is yeah. There's. But I don't then think I there's th- another way to read that sentence. Exactly. Unless, unless so- you stick it in a frame where you're sticking it in somebody's mouth, and then you're showing that that person is an idiot. I I think I think in that case you run up against a real the the limits of and and. Um, but then I thought maybe the way, though, to talk about this text and to read this text, which I, with, the only way you could have done it with my students, I think, would have been to say that, like, even someone as admirable of, as him, who I think overall intends the piece to be a critique of colonialism and a critique of this kind of utter poverty, 
even someone like him, you know, we're reading it today and we can see that there, that, that there are things in his language and in his understanding that, like, are really flawed. And when people read us in 100 years... We think we have great politics and we're like doing the right, you know, telling these stories as they deserve to be told. And and they may very well find us very, very lacking. So that was the way that I thought about kind of like if I wanted to frame it. My concern would be that this piece is not that far from what you would read in like some of the books that I'm reviewing, uh, historical fiction set in the Arab world, usually with a female protagonist who speaks for the Arabs, doesn't interact much with them, and they are used as this tool to contextualise or to create tension for the for the protagonist. And these are the same kind of, like, f- you know, comparing people to flies or insects or how describing the dirt and the, the poverty without context like this these are the same narratives that exist today and definitely not in satire so when like dissecting this this text i would be scared to normalize something like this um and presenting this as satire and assuming that other examples of dehumanization dehumanization of arabs are also automatically satire and give them the credit that we give george orwell yeah I mean, I, I think that he is sort of like purposely writing this at, like he is actually, his subject is the dehumanization of these people. So he ta- he's talking about them, I mean, again, with this invisibility thing, that like, he it's a risky piece. It's why it's kind of an interesting piece, I think, to read and to talk about. It's why it has a lot of emotion, like... I, th- I think there's sort of like a lot of feeling in it and when you read it too because I feel like it is right on the line of writing exactly that line of like is does he see these people this way or is he saying is he sort of mouthing the way that you mm. is, he vent- is, he, is he sort of mouthing the sort of prevalent discourse on these people how most white people see these people at that time and then kind of twisting it back a, a little bit I don't know and I agree that some some and all of these are are cliches at the same time that like probably what he's saying I mean like descriptions of like Morocco under the protectorate like there were the the levels I think of poverty and of and of and of ill health and are, are it's true like you see black and white photographs sometimes also of like these squares in Marrakesh and stuff like it was absolutely shocking now like who's responsible for that is a different question but it's not that there wasn't some reality to like the fact that there 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 were there were shocking levels of people with like nothing but I think you need to do more than just present the situation and not provide any context. Right, he, he's, not, he's not showing anybody who's... I mean, where is the, the, the French soldier who's at the, the head of this march? Mm-hmm. Um, okay, there's the white NCOs. Uh, so had the white NCOs marching in the ranks. I mean, but it, I just feel like we're only getting this, this amount uh, with, without... It being set in some kind of system. Yes, we we can read into it. We know that there was a French protectorate. We know um, 
how there was a system of sort of de-education and re-education. But that's not made explicit in this piece. It may be this... I mean, certainly it is a criticism of invisibilization, but... And of colonialism, like he says, all colonial empires are in reality founded upon that fact. Right. But is it a criticism of invisibilization that also then just does the same thing Mm. over again? Right. I guess that's that's the question. Like when he says, it's difficult to believe that you are walking among human beings... I think he doesn't believe that he's walking among human beings. It doesn't he ask at one point? I get, and, I, and I, think he, I think he does. So I think that's the right. difference. I think maybe I'm just being more... I mean, I can't believe it wouldn't make sense to me as a piece if it wasn't read that way. Like, I don't even know what it would be saying, really. Like, I can't imagine it's just a straightforward piece about how, like, everyone in Morocco isn't a human being. No, but <laughs> you know what exist. I mean? Like, those... I just find that... <laughs> yeah, I guess they do, but I wouldn't expect it from him I would also like be mindful of people like this was written for a British white audience and these are depictions not just of Arabs but of black people that echo echo racism that people face today and like if I was a student in your class and I came I thought no definitely that was another reason. I just didn't... I thought it would, be very, it would be very hard for me to talk about confidently. Like, I wouldn't... I would be worried about it being offensive to be... Upsetting to people. And not just offensive, but you, it would put an Arab or Senegalese, because there's a mention of the Senegalese soldier, person on the spot. Like, I experienced this a lot studying Middle Eastern politics at university. Like, something would come up, and it's just like, you are the representative, and you have to be the one to to fight that battle or mm. to, to counter it, even while you are experiencing this kind of, like... To tell everybody else whether it's, offe- whether it's offensive or not, or whether it's... Or to, or to validate it, or right. at, at, just on the spot as well, like... Right. I just think that you can write a text where you intend to be critical, that where you intend to dissect the process of invisibilizing other people and yet not be able to see them yeah i mean he, he says what does morocco mean to a frenchman an orange grove or a job in a government service or to an englishman Cam- camels castles palm trees foreign legionnaires brass trays and bandits one could probably live here for years without noticing that for nine tenths of the people the reality of life is an endless back-breaking struggle to wring a little food out of an eroded soil. Yeah, but what does he know about what its life is like for nine tenths of the people? He never talked to yeah, anybody. So many about one guy. But I mean, you can't fault. So I mean, isn't it? You're saying shouldn't he be mentioning that? Like. I, do, I don't know. What do I, I know about? Like, I'm, I, you know. No, what I, I don't know anything But I'm still going to say if there's, like, a high rate of poverty in Morocco, I'm not going to not mention that, say, as a journalist or, like, it's not like you, you Yeah, know. but he's saying what the reality of life is an endless back-breaking struggle to wring a little food out of an eroded soil. That's what he's saying. Right. Life is, he's, he's explaining what life is like for these people without chatting them up about it. Right. No, I think there's this problem of communication. But, I mean, if he's going to write anything at all, he's always going to be writing it as an outsider and someone who is probably poorly informed and someone who can always be told, you don't really know what life here is like. And he should be writing it. But then we'd never write about any other place other than the places. No, you can do research. He's pulled statistics out of his 
pass, as we say in this. And he also, at one point, he mentions when people die in Morocco, their families bury them and they're just, just in a shroud and they're forgotten and nobody cares about their dead. And that's that's a trope that exists about Palestinians today that, you know, there's so many of them that what's one when it dies? I also find that, I mean, I don't know, that seems hard to believe. I think it was a very, it's like a very traditional thing to visit the cemetery and people do it all the time on like holidays and, for, on, and very regularly. So I don't know if he's saying like people don't visit their dead. Well, he was sort of suggesting that dead, because dead people are not put in a pine box per se, that there's sort of less care about, you might step on a bone. It, right. It does seem to sort of... Um, Is he saying they're unmarked? Yeah. The graves yes, are unmarked? Yes. They're, not, they're only yeah. put in... Some... Oh, yeah, no gravestone, no name, no identifying mark of any kind. I mean, that may... I don't know, maybe this is, this was true of this cemetery at this time. That's certainly not true of all cemeteries in Morocco. That's exactly what I mean. He jumps to these conclusions. And where does he get this nine-tenths from? Like, I bet he didn't do a survey. I bet there wasn't a census. Right. <laughs> he's, just, he's just generalizing and jumping to conclusions. And, and I'm not but suggesting he's blaming the colonial powers. For, I mean, he's saying, basically, like, we come here and have sinecures. And, like, meanwhile, most of this country is, like, a very poor farmer, which was probably true of Morocco in 1939. Like, it was a largely agricultural country where, like, most people didn't own much of anything. But the, does that justify projecting what you expect them to do onto them without having any information about them no no i mean of course not i just think that he can be attempting to critique the system and have some good critiques while overall i think he fails i think he is attempting to critique invisibilization and also further invisibilizes uh, to use this terrible verb that I've coined. Invisibilize. Yes. Mm. It's all right. Well, so anyway, I mean, this is why I think it's an interesting, when you don't know, when it's not a sort of, you know, well, maybe I'm the only one who doesn't know. You guys seem to be in agreement, I think, more or less (laughs) about your critique of it. But I've shown this to other people and who have had... Well, have readings more similar right. to mine, I suppose, in the sense that they, that, that, that they, they found that it, they didn't think that it was intended, you know. And I don't think you're saying it's intended no, literally either, but you're the, that the overall effect... I'm talking about effect, yeah. Without meaning to, even, mm-hmm. in fact. Yeah. Well, so... All right. Well, should we then end on that note of bitter contention? <laughs> we don't disagree <laughs> that often. It's kind of exciting when we do. Right. <laughs> So, uh, Rukaya, thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, and, uh, and for talking about your book. And I would like to say that the portion of it that I have read so far, and I'm at the beginning of it, uh, not only do I think this is, think this is like a, a, a story that hasn't been told before, but I think the way it's told um, is very nice. And I have multiple folded down corner pages and underlined spots at just lines that I think are are very beautiful and I think it has a lot of suspense from the very beginning and like you immediately sort of want to know what's going to happen and um and a lot of warmth to the relationships and the characters so I'm very interested that's really nice to hear thank you and I think I read it three or possibly four times in some in some various uh slightly different uh stages and I also give it a recommend because there are very few books that I would read three or four times, really. 
All right. Well, it was great talking with both of you guys, and um, we will speak again soon. All right. Okay. Bye. Bye. (laughs)